Tatăl nostru care ești în cer. Te laud pentru dragostea ta statornică. Îți mulțumesc că viața mea este în mâinile tale. Ori de câte ori, cred că trebuie să-mi dau seama de puterile mele. Amintește-mi că am ajuns atât de departe, numai prin harul și providența ta. You are listening to a sermon from Our Voices series at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. In this series, we're taking some time to listen and learn from the pastors of other churches in the greater Seattle area. To find out more, please visit us at www.doxa-church.com or join us on Sunday mornings in downtown Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. Well, good morning. Good morning, Doxa. How are you? That was beautiful. My name's Sam. I'm the planting pastor of a, a church in the south of Seattle in a neighborhood called Beacon Hill um, called Reunion. Um, so you guys have actually supported us and um, part of like, helping us get going. So we're thankful for what you guys have done in your partnership. We're thankful to be here today. Um, a little bit about me. I have a wife, Esther, who's over here on the right, my right, and we have five kids. In fact, we get number six. We get number six due at the end of November. Um, so we had a church plant going. That's been challenging and beautiful. And we got some kids um, and it feels like a lot going on in this season. So we're thankful to be here. Um, a little bit more about me. I'm a Yankee fan. I thought I'd say that because like we're talking about unity today, right? We're talking about unity. It's like, if you all look, I'm just giving you a little test. Can we be unified? Can we do this? Um, even though I'm from the Northeast, I'm a Yankee fan. I think we can. Um, so there's a lot to pray for for us there. As you can see, like we got a new church plant going on. We got a tribe of kids and I'm a Yankee fan. So just pray for me in all those areas. And um, But no, we're thankful to be here, thankful for DOXA and your partnership, honored to be here. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, a, a, a passage from the book of Ephesians today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 today. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I'll read it again for us, then I'll pray and we'll jump in. Paul is writing here to the church of Ephesus, which is a city um, that was a global influential diversity in his time. He had planted a church there and he's writing back a letter to the city, which he was very accustomed to do. He says this to them in verse, our chapter four, verse one. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for your word. I pray that you would teach us today, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us, that you would correct us when we need corrected, that you would encourage us when we need encouragement, that you would send us out more aligned with who you are, rooted more in your identity and walking in your way today. We need you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. Well, I tell my kids, I tell my kids all the time that there's an ocean, an ocean of difference between saying something and being something, right? Because listen, someone can say the words, I love you, right? Yet they can neglect you. 
They can abandon you. They can ignore you. They can therefore, in other words, right, not love you. Love is most action, definitely in action, right? In theology, and theology works this way as well. There's a difference between what is called orthodoxy, which is this idea of a right belief or a right doctrine, and this idea of orthopraxy, which is how we live out a doctrine, how we live out things rightly in light of what we believe. And both matter as Christians. Both of those areas matter. What we believe about God and what is true about God and what is true about us because of what God has done is foundational. But so is how we respond to God. In chapter four here of Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, he's going to shift gears and he's going to teach the people that he's been writing to how to live in light of what God's done. He spent the first few chapters walking them through how their identity is rooted in Christ and his work. But now here in the beginning of chapter four, he starts with reminding his readers where he is, where he is. He says this, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Here's where Paul's at as he's writing his letter. He's in prison in Rome. And he's there because he's declared Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar. And the Greeks and the Romans, well, they didn't like that, right? And he's there in prison because he's declared Jesus as the son of God. And the, and the Jews didn't like that, right? And he's there. He's there in prison because he's building a multicultural church where both Jew and Greek alike are seen as one based on the work of Jesus. And as you know, people don't like it when we mess with their comforts or ideas or idols or systems. And Paul has been starting these new churches all across the region and people are beginning to follow Jesus and Jew and Gentiles are beginning to live together as one family. And so those that oppose Paul's message here, they try to snuff out the movement by locking Paul away in prison. Now, how many of us know that you cannot lock up or stop the movement of Jesus? Amen? You can't lock up or stop the movement of Jesus because we hear, we see Paul, he's writing a letter back to this church to build up the church that he helped start. Now, he might not be able to be there with them in person, right? But his pen still works, amen? And so he writes. He keeps on keeping on, even in the midst of difficulty. And he does so because he was rooted deeply in his identity and his calling. And Paul wants his readers that he's writing to to remember their calling as well. And he wants us in Seattle in 2018 to remember our calling too. Listen, Paul has spent significant ink reminding the church of Ephesus of their calling. In chapter one, he mentions it, telling them that they were summoned and invited to follow Jesus and to receive all the benefits of being part of God's family. And Paul draws out in detail this beautiful reality of what the calling entails. He says that we who are in Christ are blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. He walks them through it in the first couple of chapters saying, hey, you've been chosen by God. You've been adopted into his family. You've been forgiven and you've been sealed by the spirit. And then he says, you've been given insight into the very mystery of God. Then he tells us what that insight is. It's, to, it's that Jesus and God in Christ is uniting all things, things in heaven and things on earth into Christ. 
But now Paul begins to shift here. After three chapters of explaining who we are in Christ, he's, he's ready for his readers to walk out who they are. He has built a strong foundation. There are deep roots planted, but Paul doesn't want them or us to remain there. He wants to see trees grow. He wants to see branches reach out. And yes, he wants us to rest in Christ's work. Absolutely. But he also wants us to follow Jesus and walk with him. Because listen, sometimes as Christians, sometimes we make following Jesus all about rest. And sometimes we make following Jesus all about work. But properly understood, it's resting that leads to walking. Amen? It's resting that leads to walking. And here in chapter 4, Paul is ready for some action steps. Paul is ready to call each of us to get into the game. He's saying, hey guys, it's time to get off the couch, okay? And it's time to walk. And so like a good coach, Paul urges, the text says, he urges his readers to walk in a way worthy of the calling they've received. You see that there in verse one. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's saying, hey guys, get out there and practice what you believe. He's saying, receive your calling, yes, but also walk out your calling. He's saying, get in the game, take steps. He's saying, hey, don't just consume. Don't just read, don't just podcast, right? Don't just receive. Yes, do those things, but not just those things. Give, live, practice, walk. Listen, the calling of God, the calling of God that Paul's referring to here is so beautiful. It would be deeply unfortunate to receive it, but not do anything with it. It's like receiving a gift. For example, say you live in a city, okay, that walkability and public transit is close and non-existent. Imagine a city like that. Maybe you're from Issaquah. It's like your city. You're like, I'm relating. <laughs> and imagine you don't have a car, right? You don't have a car to get around, uh, to go to work, to grab groceries, to take your kids to events, or take family trips. Imagine you don't have a car in this type of city. But imagine that one day someone gifts you with a brand new Land Rover. Anybody like Land Rovers? Anybody Land Rover fans? I got a picture of one. I'm not a car guy. I'm like, I'm like the public transit guy. But if I could choose one car, it'd be this one right here. So imagine that someone gifts you with this car and now you can make it to work, right? Now you can see the surrounding area. Now you can go to your kid's ball game or dance recital. I mean, with this thing, you can go on a safari. A safari, guys. <laughs> you could do that. And then, and then listen, imagine that you receive this gift and you just let it sit there. You just park it in the garage. You just park it on the street and you never use it. Instead, you stay on the couch, you watch Netflix, right? You don't go to work and therefore your bills pile up. You don't go out to the gym or go to the surrounding region and do some hiking so your health worsens. And because you don't get out much, your family and your friends and your neighbors become less connected to you. Now, that's an incomplete example like all examples. But imagine if that's how we respond to the beautiful calling of Christ. It would be incomplete if we don't walk out the calling we've received. In fact, it would be unhealthy and even detrimental to both our spiritual and communal health. And so Paul urges his readers to walk in a manner worthy of the, of the calling that they've received. He's saying there's a worthy way to walk out the calling that Jesus in your life. He's saying, don't do it in injustice. It's this beautiful gift. So question, how 
are we to walk out this calling? What's that look like, Paul? The answer is here in the text. We find it in actually in verse three of chapter four, in the very center of today's passage. The way we walk out our calling in a manner worthy of it is to walk in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. See in verse three, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's saying, hey, if you want to know if you're walking out the calling you've received, one way to measure it is about how eager you are for unity within the family of God. How eager are you for unity within the family of God? Paul uses this word eager, right? And this word communicates that we are to spare no effort. Marcus Bart says about this word eager, he writes, it is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb here. He says, not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole person is meant, involving their will and sentiment and reason and physical strength and total attitude. He says that the imperative mood, the participle found in the Greek text, excludes passivity, a wait and see attitude. He says, yours is the initiative. Do it now, mean it. You and I are to do it, to be eager. And as we read through the New Testament, we see that Paul and Jesus aren't ever okay with lip service unity. They aren't okay with half-hearted unity. In fact, Jesus' prayer for the saints before he went to the cross was for what? Unity, right? And here Paul says to be eager for the thing that Jesus prayed for. He doesn't say to be eager, listen, he does not say to be eager about our preferred baptism method, right? He doesn't say to be eager about our preferred preaching style. Listen, he doesn't even say to be eager for the Seattle Seahawks. Let's play with y'all. Let's play with you guys. Come on, you're in Bellevue. You guys, let's mess with you guys. <laughs> he says to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And he calls us, you see that word there, to maintain the unity, to be eager to maintain the unity. Now he calls us to maintain it because listen, it already exists if you're in Christ. We don't, listen, we don't create unity. He doesn't say, hey, create the unity. He says, be eager to maintain it, meaning it's already been created for you. We maintain what has been given to us. Unity exists whether, whether we live it out or not, Right? And it exists because the spirit is the one who unites us as one. It's the unity of the what? The spirit that we are to be eager to maintain here. Now, Paul in chapter two has already shown us that Jesus has given his life, it says in chapter two, to break down these dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Listen, the gospel has already done the work of making us one in Christ. He's already done the work. Listen, we don't add to this. We don't add to this unity, we receive it. And then we begin to walk it out, amen? Begin to walk it out. The spirit does what Jesus prayed for in John 17, where Jesus says regarding the church, he says, Father, make them, the body of Christ, the church, make them one as you and I are one. He's saying, in the same way, Father, help the church to reflect our oneness. Help them reflect our oneness, Father. And then the spirit is sent after Jesus is risen from the dead. He sends the spirit and the spirit is sent to indwell us. 
And as he does, he makes us one. I think the problem is sometimes for, for us as the church is we often don't live like it's true. And the problem here for the church of Ephesus that Paul's writing to, the reason they need reminded of this is because they were a very diverse church from a variety of experiences and backgrounds and theological persuasions and, and the temptation for them, for this church, was to fall back into a monocultural and tribal mentality and community. That was their temptation. They realized that doing diverse ministry is beautiful and right, but they also realized it was challenging because it meant that they had to give up something called preferences. Preferences. Preferences like, well, the Jews like to pray this way, or the, the Gentiles like to sing this way. We're not used to that. Or these type of Jews over here, they really, really zone out on this type of theology. Or these type of Gentiles, they eat food like this? Oh, man. Like, this was so foreign for this church as it's being built. But doesn't that kind of sound familiar? Wrestling with preferences? Like, you use those instruments during worship? <laughs> you teach using that method? You believe what about baptism? <laughs> they believe the Spirit can still do that today? You wear that to church. Are you serious? Come on. <laughs> Your kids' ministry meets where? Or about, I really want to be part of a church, right, that, that caters to my needs and my preferences. Or there's not enough people my age in this church, so I'll find someplace else to worship. Or, hey, listen, if they sing more Hillsong, man, if they sing more Hillsong, I'd be in. But they don't, so I'm going to drive down to another city, get my fix. <laughs> well, if they quoted more of my favorite theologian, then I'd consider staying and investing. Now, some of you are like, man, you need to chill a little bit, Sam. Chill. Too far. It's not that serious. But I, I disagree. Because listen, often we, all of us, are tempted to rally around a cause instead of the gospel. And the thing, listen, the thing that leads Paul's be eager to maintain the unity slogan is the gospel. And quite frankly, I believe that some of us are finding our hope and our oneness in an identity other than in Christ. I think some of us are finding our hope and our identity and our oneness in an identity other than in Christ. Do you know what that's called? It's called segregation. Now, here's what I mean by that. When we rally around one cause or one type of people, we segregate ourselves from others. Now, this is a major problem in the church today, this idea of segregation. Sunday mornings are by far the most segregated time in America. Get this according to, to sociologist Michael Emerson. He says that the church is 10 times more segregated than our neighborhoods and 20 times more segregated than our local schools. And Paul, knowing this, knowing that it's too easy to fall back into an us versus them mentality addresses this. He knows it's comfortable to go back to monocultural living. And Paul knows that to do so in a, in a multicultural setting would make the gospel that he's just spent three chapters declaring look powerless. 
He is aware that our calling to be one new person in place of the two because of what Jesus has done is to be lived out through intentional communal practices. And listen, Bellevue is a multicultural hotbed. Did you know that? In fact, it is now Washington State's largest majority minority city, meaning it's grown by leaps and bounds in ethnic diversity over the last few years. It's going to continue to grow that way. So this text today means a ton for you. Now, of course, diversity is more than ethnicity, right? It includes age, includes life stage and talents and gifts, includes backstories and socioeconomics, includes education and theological tribes. And this is where the idea of unity and diversity is so powerful for us as the church. Listen, our unity as the church is around Jesus, not uniformity of culture or hobbies or style or experience. Our unity around the church, our unity in the church is around Jesus, not uniformity of culture or style or hobbies or experience. We can unify around Jesus and still enjoy differences. Amen? We can do that. Like, we can like different genres of music, and that's okay, right? We can like different types of sports. Like, some of us think baseball's amazing. Some of us think baseball's boring, right? Right? Some of us like board games. Some of us, like me, I think board games are true to their name. They're boring, you know? I can't do it. That was funny. That was, <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> but we can dress differently, right? It's okay to dress differently. Like some of us like, like craft coffee. Like we're, we are in the P&W, right? Craft coffee is kind of king out here. Some of us don't even drink coffee and you live here. And that's okay, right? <laughs> Listen, my wife, Esther, actually puts creamer and sugar in her craft coffee. Now, if you're a real craft coffee drinker, you know that's like a no-no. But she puts it in her craft coffee. Not her like gas station coffee or on a road trip, but her craft coffee. And guess what? We're still one. We're still one. Despite that, right? Well, listen, we come from a variety of cultures and all of these distinctions and differences are to be celebrated. And at the same time, listen, at the same time, we will find connection around common interests and that's okay. That's okay. I'm not saying you can't go play basketball with people who also like basketball, right? I'm not saying that if you're struggling with something that certain people can relate to or speak into that you shouldn't seek their comfort or advice. Absolutely seek their comfort and advice. But... But these things, these things aren't to be the primary things that unite us as followers of Jesus. And my concern, here's my concern for our culture right now. I believe we've begun to find unity around secondary identities. It's everywhere. And it's a temptation for all of us. Here's what I'm getting at. Being eager Being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit means particular preferences have to die. It has to, it's the only way forward. The temptation to remain in or return back to tribal or monocultural existence will be fueled by giving into personal preferences over intentional practices of peacemaking and community. Let's say that again, that's a mouthful. The temptation to remain in or return back to either tribal or monocultural existence will be fueled by giving into our personal preferences over 
are intentional practices of peacemaking and community. And Paul, aware of this, urges his readers to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And he urges us to do the same today. Now, if you're like me, if you hear Paul kind of address that, you're like, amen. Like, that's right. That's true. Like, good word, Paul, with you. But how do I do that? What's some practical ways to live out this unity? What's some practical ways to be eager to maintain this unity? So, Paul, how do we maintain this unity? What we'll see in the scripture passage is that Paul does not begin with that answer. He does not begin with a system or structure. Paul's answer to that question is not a system or structure. For some of us, we're disappointed a bit, right? Man, systems and structures are the easiest way for me to learn. But he begins instead of the posture of one's heart. The posture of one's heart. He begins with something that must be done within us by the Spirit of God. He begins with the fruit of the Spirit. He gives his readers in us five ways to walk worthy of our calling. He gives us five practical and intentional practices to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. See there in verse two, chapter four, verse two, he says to walk in humility. That's the first thing he gives us. So if we're going to be eager to maintain unity, if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, we're going to need to walk in humility. And humility is like that practice, right? That, that we love to see in others that we desire for others to have, but we're not really keen on for ourselves, right? And humility also, also um, often gets misunderstood, doesn't it? Listen, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Let me just say that. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not walking around saying like, oh, I'm a worm. I'm, I'm so jacked up. I'm unworthy. First, listen, you are the height as a human being. You are the very height of God's creation. You are created with dignity and worth in his image. And secondly, if you're in Christ today, you are a saint. You are a child of God. You are a friend of God. You're an heir of the very king of kings. Amen. You are far from a worm. So let's ditch that idea of what humility is. You don't have to beat yourself up to look humble. Here's what humility is. It's not to think of yourself less. Let me rephrase that because that's not true. It's to think of yourself less and not to think less of yourself. Humility is the recognition of the worth and value of other people. And listen, when you aren't the highlight, when we are not the highlight of what we think about, we will become more God-focused and other-centric. We will begin to lift up others and walk in humble confidence. We will go out of our way to make others feel welcomed and loved and accepted and honored. And if we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, we are going to need this, aren't we? We're going to need this humility. John Stott is helpful here. He says that humility is essential to unity. He says that pride lurks behind all discord while the, single, single, while the greatest single secret of concord is humility. And we see our king. We see Jesus perfectly display humility for us, don't we? Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself, that he emptied himself, that he gave himself away to the point of death so that others could be included. The greatest became less in order to lift up others. Jesus, listen, Jesus was never so high that he couldn't steep low and and bend over and, and help others. He was never so high that he couldn't steep low and serve. 
Instead, he served and he added value and honored the outcasts and his disciples and men and women and Jew and Gentile and rich and poor. Listen, God became man so that you and I could become heirs. Yet he never lacked authority or confidence. This is the type of humility we need if we are to maintain the unity of the spirit in the church. We must be willing to bend low and serve others. We must be willing to consider others above ourselves. If we aren't willing to do that, listen, then disunity will be the fruit of our pride and self-importance. If we aren't willing to grow in humility, then we are not eager to maintain unity. So that's the first thing Paul says. He says, be eager, or, or walk in unity. Or, God help me, this is the second sermon, guys. We only do one over at reunion. Walk in humility. <laughs> Second thing he says is walk in gentleness. To walk in gentleness. Um, gentleness isn't weakness. Sometimes we, we say gentleness, we kind of put those things together. Well, if you're gentle, then you're weak. It's not, it's not weakness. Rather, it's strength under control. G.G. Finley says it this way. Gentleness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights. And if we're going to be eager to maintain unity, that means harshness, and at times, asserting cannot be part of our MO. Listen, as a parent, I get this. Esther and I are always tired. When people ask us how we're doing, we're like tired. Every time, the same answer. So if you're going to ask us, like, that's, your, that's our answer. We're always tired, right? And when you get tired, sometimes you get short for your kids. Anybody else, any other parents in the room, you get a little short for your kids? Yeah, way too much. And guess what that never does for us? It never promotes unity in our family, does it? When I'm harsh with my family, I don't bring us together. I create a wall between us. Even if I'm right, even if my child is acting a fool, right? I still create a wall. And the scripture says what to us? It says to correct those who are, you are at odds with in a spirit of what? Gentleness, right? And when we don't respond to one another, when we respond to one another with harshness rather than gentleness, we create walls with others. Listen, we cannot be eager for unity and not walk in gentleness. To be harsh and fight for unity are opposing actions. You might say, but, but I'm fighting for my cause. But I have a right. You don't understand, Sam, I have a right. But they are wrong. But listen, it's not the way of Jesus. And I guarantee you, it will have the opposite effect. It will divide the family, not unite it. It will polarize, not bring together. Matthew 11 reminds us that Jesus was known for both humility and gentleness, for he was gentle and lowly of heart. May we be as well. And thirdly, Paul says to walk in patience. He says, if you want to walk in a, in a way that's eager to maintain the unity, if you want to walk in a worthy way that you receive your calling, you need to walk in patience. If we're going to be unified, if we're going to put aside preferences, then we are going to need patience. Because listen, the church is the body of Christ. It's not Jesus himself, right? And we, the body of Christ, will hurt each other. We will offend one another. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to say and do things that without patience being part of the recipe will divide us. And listen, isn't patience one of those things that we receive over and over again from our good God? I mean, how many times do we cross the line or put something above him, or think, or say, or do something that is opposite his way. And yet he is what? 
He is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. He is long suffering with aggravating people. He gives us what we need in the moment. He is patient with us. And when we remind ourselves of this, we too can be patient with those around us. We can be patient with the church. Patience will lead us towards unity rather than away from it. Then fourthly, Paul says, to walk in love, bearing with one another. To walk in love, bearing with one another. John Stott's helpful here again. He says that bearing with one another speaks of that mutual tolerance without which no group of human beings can live together in peace. No group of humans, no family, no organization, no team, no church can live together in peace without bearing with one another. Listen, sometimes we just need to bear with one another. Amen. Now, this doesn't mean that we give a a pass to wrongdoing. I don't want you to hear that. It's not what it means. Rather, it means that when we are wronged and when someone doesn't quite get it, we hang in there with them and for them and we forgive them and we correct them in gentleness and we are patient with them because God is that way toward us. And listen, what's the motivation that Paul says here? What's the motivation for being able to bear with one another? It's love. If we truly love one another, we will bear with one another. Amen? And the gospel should help us here again, right? Jesus bears with us, does he not? He bears with us. In fact, he bore our sin for us. That's how much he bears with us. And now we can forgive because we've been forgiven. We can love because we've been loved because we've been loved by a good and gracious and patient God. If we give up on one another, if we give up, we won't be motivated to maintain the unity here. We will give up on that too. And lastly, Paul says this. You need to remind one another of something. You need to remind one another of something. Remind one another of our oneness. Remind one another of our oneness. Paul ends with this incredible reminder of who we are and the commonalities we share. In fact, these are the preferences. You guys want to know what the preferences are. These are the ones we should rally around right here. He uses the word one seven times in his last part. He's trying to drive a point home, obviously, right? He's reminding the church of Ephesus, listen, remember Jesus made you one. You're not two anymore. Remember that the wall is not up anymore. Jesus has torn it down, church. You are now one new, multicultural, multi-generational, multi-gendered, multi-gifted, multi-expressed family. That's who you are in Christ, amen? And as Christians, we follow this triune God. One God and three persons, united yet distinct. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and we see all three in these few verses. In verses four through six, I'll read them for you. Paul finishes saying, there is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says we have one spirit. Not a few, not like, like different spirits that's kind of floating around for different types of people, right? That's not Christianity. No, one spirit indwells and fills all. And this one spirit creates this one new body, one body comprising of Jew and Gentile and black and white and Africans and Europeans and Asians and Hispanics and Republicans and Democrats and men and women and rich and poor, all one in Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that by one spirit, 
We, have, we, we were all baptized into one body, Jew and Gentile alike. And then we have one Lord, and his name is Jesus, right? And in him, we have one hope, and we have one faith in Christ alone, and we have one baptism. And then lastly, we have one God and Father above all, through all, and in all, which means that we are one family with one Father. Listen, because we have one Spirit and one Lord and one Father, we can only be one body. We can only have one faith. We can only have one hope and one baptism. We are one family, called by our one Father, saved by our one Lord, and sealed by our one Spirit. Amen? Guys, do we not need this text for today? Do we not need this for today? We are such a divided nation, are we not? So divided. We are purposely segregating. And listen, we can't just give in to pragmatism. To give in to pragmatism because it just works is to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was literally told by a mega church pastor from Texas to plant a homogenous church in Seattle that is mono-ethnic because it just works. And then he choked with me, he said, he poked fun at people who say, well, we should just reflect the diversity of heaven. And he said, well, we'll reflect that when we get there. All right. But that day, that pastor pointed me away from the gospel. He didn't go to the scriptures. He didn't go to Ephesians and point me to the oneness of the church or the oneness of our God. He didn't point me to this context and show me that this letter was literally being written to keep together two ethnic groups of people from falling back into monoculturalism and creating new walls. He didn't share with me that to do so would make the work that Jesus did on the cross irrelevant. Remember, Ephesians 2 says that he tore down the wall of hostility and made one new people in place of the two through his blood and sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could be forgiven and made one family. And not just be made one, but live as one. That's what today's text is all about, to be eager to maintain the unity, to live it out, to walk out our calling Your calling and my calling is to be one united church. Your calling and my calling is to display the power of the gospel by living in community together, by eating together, by your families and my families playing together, by worshiping together. So imagine with me a church. Imagine a church that displays unity and diversity in Seattle. Imagine a church that displays unity and diversity in the Seattle region. A church that bucks the trend of being segregated. A church that looks more like our public schools and our neighborhoods. A church that welcomes the outsider and the oppressed and the other. A church that puts secondary issues on the altar. A church that rallies around Jesus in our city. A church that does reflect heaven. A church that is an answer to Jesus' prayer that we would be one. A church eager to maintain the unity. But listen, It is not until we begin to live as one in the church that we can join Jesus as he unites all things in the city. And here's why I I say that. Unity and love between the family of God is a missional posture. It legitimizes Jesus to the watching world. If we aren't showing love and unity towards one another, if we are always beefing and dividing and segregating, why would anyone want to join us? I think we have enough dysfunction in our world and in the families around us. 
and in our own families, right? The watching world and our neighbors and our friends aren't going to want to even peek behind the curtain of the church if we aren't displaying love and if we aren't eager for unity. So let's do this. Let's commit to being eager to maintain the unity that Jesus has won for us. Let's dive into missional communities. Let's serve one another. Let's serve our city together. Let's pray for one another. Let's worship together. Let's cry together when we need to. Let's celebrate together when we need to. Let's build together. Let's be a multicultural church that joins Jesus as he unites all things. And let's pray that he would motivate us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And I just want to say this as I close as a form of encouragement to you guys. There's work being done to foster unity in this region. There is. And you guys, DOXA is an example of this. You guys support churches like Reunion who weren't sent out by you. We weren't sent out from this congregation, but we are simply your brothers and sisters in Christ and you support us. And there's a growing group of churches in the region around the sound coming together to learn from one another and pray together and support one another. And your leaders here at DOXA are part of that and have helped spur that on. Even this series, the Voices series, is an example of what unity can look like. And this region that we're in, guys, needs to see what we are beginning to see the rumblings of. If we begin to live as one, the city will see something refreshing. They will see Jesus. And this city in particular, and this region in particular, needs to see oneness. They're aching for it. Of all the churches in this region, I really believe that you, Doxa, might have the greatest potential because of your history and your influence to be part of seeing unity displayed in this region. Amen? Like, what a calling. It's an honor. What a calling. So family, let's do this. Let's be eager to maintain the unity that Jesus has won for us. Let's collectively admit that we cannot do this without the spirit of God bearing his good fruit in us. We can't do it without him. And let's remind one another of the oneness of our God. Let's be quick to remind one another of that. And let's submit to his way and begin to walk out the calling we've received. Amen? Amen. Well, pray with me. Father, thanks for sending your son. Thanks for sending your son, Jesus, to die on our behalf, to break down the barriers between you and us and one another. All types of different people can now become one because of the work of Jesus on our behalf because he broke down the dividing walls of hostility. And Jesus, thanks for dying and rising from the dead and then sending the spirit to indwell us. And the spirit indwells us and he makes us one, one new body. And he gives us the power and the ability and the fruit to live out these things, the humility and the gentleness that we don't have the ability to do in our own strength. And we're so aware of that. So we need your help. We need your help. Please help us be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and use us to declare and demonstrate the good news of Jesus to this region so that many more can see and believe in Jesus and his good news. Pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.